In the first part of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul focused on the foundational truth that Christ had been resurrected and that subsequently every believer in Christ should expect to be similarly resurrected. In the second part of the chapter, Paul addresses what our bodies will be like in the resurrection because the Corinthians were pointing to the perishable nature of our physical bodies as an objection against resurrection. So with that in mind, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 58. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed." For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, 
Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The Corinthians questions that Paul quotes at the beginning of this passage were not raised out of curiosity. They weren't saying, well, what exactly will happen? What will it be like in the resurrection? I'm curious to know. The Corinthians were deriding resurrection by asking what they felt were rhetorical questions. So what they were really asking is, how can the dead possibly be raised with a body? How could you possibly restore a body that had been destroyed or decomposed? It's not possible. See, there's no resurrection. That's what they were going to do. That's what they were saying. That's what they were sort of contending. The Corinthians' questions were focused on how a dead body could possibly be resuscitated. Paul's focus, however, was on the altogether different nature of the resurrected body from the physical body. He wasn't trying to explain how our physical bodies, our dead corpses, could be brought back to life like the popular depiction of Frankenstein's monster, right? He's not, he's not explaining that. He's not saying, oh, this is how it'll happen. This body that you bury here, this is how it'll come alive. You know, he's not talking about that at all. He was trying, he was using these analogies of a seed, of the differences between species, birds, fish, animals, and people. He's making that differentiation. And he speaks of the glory of heavenly bodies and to state all to make this point that our resurrected bodies will be altogether different from our physical bodies. Our resurrected bodies will be altogether different from our physical bodies. We will be recognizable. Somehow, somehow, that the, however the Lord does this, we will be recognizable. But we will not be the same. Remember, Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection. Look at verses 48 and 49 again. As was the earthly man, Adam, who was of the dust of the earth, who was natural, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, Jesus, who was of heaven, who was spiritual, so also are those who are of heaven. Those who die in the earth, as of Adam, die. The natural death, the body, all of that. But those who are of Jesus, when they die, they are to be resurrected as the heavenly man was resurrected. Those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man in and through our physical bodies, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man in and through our resurrected bodies. That's the contrast that he's making here. And if you look at this list that he presents, if you notice the differences between these two bodies, right? Physical body versus the resurrected body. The physical body is natural. This resurrected body 
is spiritual. It's altogether of a different entity, different material. This is not, we're not speaking about the same flesh and blood anymore. All right? Natural versus spiritual. The physical body is perishable. From the moment you're born, there's a perishing that is happening. There's a perishable nature of our lives on earth. But the eternal life that the Lord gives us and this resurrected body is imperishable. It is built, it is created, it is formed to last forever. And so there is that difference between the physical and the resurrected in that sense. The physical body is, in the way that it's expressed here, dishonorable. And well, all that means is it, there's unseemliness, there's shame, there's, there's different aspects of what happens to the physical body and deterioration and everything else that you sort of don't think of as being glorious. Whereas the spiritual body is glorious. When Adam and Eve were created, it says that the glory of the Lord was on them, covering them, clothing them, so that they had no need for even outer garments as such. When they sinned, the glory of the Lord was gone, and they realized that the glory of the Lord was gone, and they made for themselves coverings. The glory of the Lord is going to be on these resurrected bodies. And there's no doubt, no matter what age you are, maybe if you're very young, maybe you won't feel that your body is weak, but no matter what, what age you are, you know, the body's weak. Our natural bodies, our physical bodies are weak. But here we are, talking about a spiritual body, a spiritual resurrected body that is powerful. Not because of our strength, but because it is the Lord's strength that is in us, the Lord's power that is in us. While we live on this earth, while we go through all the things that we do in this earth, we experience that just in part. We experience healing and deliverance. We experience restoration. We experience you know, God coming and touching the lives of ourselves and our children and you know, giving us the strength and preserving our lives, protecting us from harm. We experience that in part. But when we are in our resurrected bodies, the Bible is making clear that all these things are permanent. These are the things that we look forward to. These are the things that we recognize for what God will do in us and through us. Now, let me make this point. We try to think about resurrection and the resurrected body and everything else, and we look at examples of Jesus even, and we say, well, he ate and drank. Does that mean that we would eat and drink? I, you know, it, maybe, but it doesn't seem like there's any function for it, any use for it. So we're not expecting that that will be the main focus at all. That we don't know. And, and Jesus, when he is resurrected, he points to the wound in his side and the wounds in his arms and his hands and his feet. And he says, look, touch, see, do this. But that it doesn't mean that when we are resurrected in his glory, that we will have marks from our natural bodies. You know, so we don't know all these details, but when we try to comprehend with our natural minds what eternity with God will be like, we just end up with all sorts of fanciful imaginations. And you just have to watch any movie or read any book or, you know, for people to, have, you know, to realize that people have come up with all sorts of imaginations of what it will be like. But you see, spiritual things are spiritually discerned. 
And until our natural bodies are sown in death as a seed, and our spiritual bodies are raised up in Christ in eternal life, we won't fully know what eternity in these resurrected bodies will be. You see, when Paul tells the Corinthians in verse 36 that they're being foolish, he says, how foolish? How foolish that you're thinking like this or saying these things and speaking against resurrection. He's not referring to the lack of human wisdom or knowledge. He's not saying, he's not saying, well, you, know, you don't know anything. You know, you're not wise. You're, you're stupid. You know, he's not making any statement like that. What he's referring instead to is the kind of foolishness described in Psalm 14, verse 1, which says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. If you have decided that there is no God, then every possibly possible work of God will be explained away. He'll say, oh, that's because of this, that's because of that. And every promise of God, in this case for a bodily resurrection, will be dismissed as irrational and illogical. He'll say, oh, no, can't be. I've seen how the body decomposes. I've seen what will happen. No, there's no way. There's no way that this can happen. If you believe there is a God, that this infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful being has created us, created our spirits, souls, and bodies, and that this creator God provided a plan of salvation and restoration to deal with death, which is the wages of sin, then you can believe God's promise to recreate us, to give us a body as he determines in the resurrection. You can be confident of that. But if you don't believe in God, if you say there is no God, all of this is definitely foolishness. It just seems like fairy tales, vain imaginations. But if you will come to the Lord and you will say, Lord, I believe you. I trust you. I see that you are faithful in what you have promised. Then although we don't know how exactly this will happen, we can rest assured that it will happen. Now, Although we may not know how the body transformation takes place, you know, how, you know, like what exactly happens, do the atoms change, what, you know, if you're, like, we don't know those details in the resurrection of what will happen, we do know when it will happen. Our resurrected bodies will be raised up when Jesus returns. Listen again to verses 51 through 54. Listen. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Remember, that's the promise we talked about last week. Jesus defeats sin in the grave. Death is defeated. It is consummated. It is completed when he returns and we are resurrected. All of a sudden, in that flash, in that twinkling of an eye, in that instant, oh, everything is complete. And we say death has been swallowed up in victory. Jesus will return. He will gather to himself those that belong to him. And as 1 Thessalonians 4.16 tells us, 
Believers who die in Christ, and by the way, when I use the word believers, don't think of that as just New Testament, right? All through the Old Testament, all through history, past, before Jesus came into the world, before he was incarnated as a man, before Jesus came into the world, the people were looking forward to Jesus and believing in him. After he came to the world, the people knew that Jesus had come and believed in him. But it was not anything other than that belief in the, the plan of salvation, in the covenant that God had made, in this assurance that the Messiah would come, that all believers died in Christ, whether it was before the cross or after the cross. And so believers who die in Christ before his return, although they are already absent from the natural body, and present with the Lord in a disembodied state like the angels. And by the way, if you have questions on this, we'll talk about it in the sermon discussion on Wednesday. Those believers that have died in Christ before his return, they will be resurrected into their spiritual bodies when Jesus returns. Read 1 Thessalonians 4:16 again, 16 and 17, and go through some of those scriptures to understand that that, that will be what happens to those that have already died in Christ. Believers who are alive when Jesus returns will not die a physical death, but will be instantaneously transformed. Death and the grave will be permanently defeated. Paul triumphantly declares, thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so whether we die before Jesus returns, or are alive when he returns, we look forward for the resurrection. The resurrection is that defining truth of the Christian faith. The resurrection of Jesus, without it, our belief would be in vain, and the resurrection of ourselves, because Christ is the guarantee, and this is the hope that we have, and we look forward to that. So, this morning, having said all of this, I want to spend more time in terms of our response to this and how we would think about how to apply this word and many many Sundays the application maybe a statement that we would make based on the truths that are in the verses this morning there's no confusion no no need for any other explanations Paul says very clearly we respond and apply the word of God that we have heard by standing firm and giving ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. There are two directives in verse 58. One, stand firm, let nothing move you. And two, give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Since we know that we have resurrection to look forward to, since we know that we will be resurrected in the future, we stand firm now and we give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. That's what he's talking about. Now, standing firm is a prerequisite to giving ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. You can't give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord if you're not standing firm, if your house is not built on the rock. Because when you give yourself, there will be winds. There will be waves, there will be trials, there will be temptations, 
There will be all sorts of things that come, and the rain and the wind will buffet, will come against that home, that house, your family, your, your children, your circumstances. These things will happen. When that starts to happen, if you don't know what it means to stand firm, not only can you fall, not only can you be damaged in that sense, but you can affect a whole bunch of others too. Again, hear me. I'm not saying God is not faithful. I'm saying we make ourselves vulnerable through our sin, through our neglect, through our indulgence. We make ourselves vulnerable. If you have left the front door open when the rains start, the water will come in. If there's a, a leak in your roof, and you haven't done anything when it was dry to fix it. When it rains, it, that water is going to come into the house. Right? So the Lord says to us, you have to be those that are being careful, that don't make yourselves vulnerable, but instead you would stand firm. And as we have already seen in the previous scriptures, we have to receive, we have to believe, we have to hold firmly to the gospel message. And he says, if you, if you believe the gospel message but don't hold firmly to it, then you have believed in vain. But when we hold firmly to the gospel message, what we are doing is we are holding to and applying the truth, the righteousness, the peace, the faith, the word of God, and the salvation of God that is inherent in the gospel message. But every one of those things that I just listed for you are exactly what is described in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 16, as the attributes of the armor of God. That we would be people who are putting on these pieces of the armor of God that represent, these pieces represent the fact that we are putting on, that we are holding firmly to, that we have become trained in the use of truth, righteousness, peace, faith, the word of God itself like a sword, and salvation that would guard our thinking, that would guard our heads, and that would be our constant reminder, constant hope. We put on these pieces of the armor of God to stand our ground to stand against the devil's schemes. The Bible says that we are not ignorant of the devil's schemes. And when you see the devil's schemes coming against you, what do you do? Because if you don't know the gospel message, if you're not standing firm according to it, if you're not holding firmly to the Lord Jesus, when the devil starts to come and you see his schemes, then you will run. And you will, you know, and when you run, you can trip and fall. And that, that sometimes is self-inflicted harm. Even the devil, does. he just has to scare you from a distance. Right? Ooh, what's going to happen? This is what the doctor says. This is what's going to happen. This is what people will think. He just has to scare you from a distance. And what do you do? You turn. You flee. You run. And in that running, we run away from God. But the Bible says, stand firm. When all these things start to come, when the devil's schemes come against you, stand firm. How? Not because you're strong, not because you've done all this working out and you're, you're ready and you're physically ready, you're mentally ready, you've psyched yourself up. You know, not because you can say, oh, I'm able to stand. No. 
It's because you stand on these things of God. You say, Lord, I receive this. I put this on. I stand in you. I stand firm knowing that when the devil's schemes come against me, oh, I can have the armor of God. And you know, let, let me say this. Paul says, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. The reinforcement that he's making there, because he could have just stopped and stand firm. Stand firm. And then gone on, right? But he says, stand firm. Let nothing move you. You know why? Because something is going to try to move you. Something is going to come. When you think you're standing, beware, be careful lest you fall. Why? Because something is coming to move you. Something will come to cut you out from underneath. Something will come as a frontal attack. Something will come from the side on your blind spot that you didn't expect. Something will come at you unexpectedly. Something will come. And he says, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Because there will be discouragements, disappointments, deceptions, and defeats that will try to move you, that will try to shake you, that will make you say, oh, I don't know. I don't know if this is worth it. I don't know if this Christian life is worth it. I don't know if this is worth the sacrifice. Something will come to move you. And when it comes, we must stand firm. In two weeks' time, we'll get to an important verse in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, where it gives us an example from Paul's life of where he had to stand firm to do the work of the Lord. But this week, I just want to have you pay attention to the directive as, as th to this directive as being for our lives. You know, we'll look at Paul's example, but this is the directive for us this morning. Stand firm. Stand firm. Do whatever it's necessary to stand firm. And when you've done all, stand. Right? We as children of God, need the children of God to stand firm. Because we encourage one another. We stand with one another. We pray for one another. We say, oh, I see that the devil is coming at you. Well, so long. No. We say, I see the devil is coming at you. I'm going to stand with you. And two of us can put a thousand to flight, or one of us can put a thousand to flight. Two of us can put 10,000 to flight. Right? We stand together. We pray together. We bring these needs before the Lord in intercession. We believe. We agree in prayer. We say, Lord God, you are faithful and you will do this because you have promised this. And we stand together. We stand firm. If you're standing by yourself, it's much easier to knock you down. But if you're standing arm in arm, if you're standing with all of those that will be with you, if you're standing to say, I receive support from this person and this person is receiving support from me, oh, it's much more difficult to knock you down. Much more difficult to knock you down. And so we stand firm in these ways. We come together in the local church. The local church is critically important, vitally important. And especially as you read these scriptures and you say, oh, yes, this is the charge. Before the resurrection, before I die in Christ, I need to stand firm. Well, I better find a local church. I better find a place where I can plug in, where I can stand with those folks and they can stand with me. And when we stand firm in that way, oh, Lord God, thanks, thanks be to God that he's given us the victory. 
He's not saying stand firm and see if everything's okay. He says stand firm because I've already won it. Just stand firm. Stand firm. I'm with you. I'm with you. When you do that, when you go through that kind of a prerequisite to say, Lord God, I'm standing firm in you. The second directive in verse 58 is to give yourself fully to the Lord. And for each one of us, that means something different. It doesn't mean the same kind of physical exertion. It doesn't mean the same sort of material resources. It doesn't mean the same kind of time. For each person, it's going to be different. But you have to be confident. You personally have to be confident that you've given yourself fully to the Lord. You're not holding back. You're not saying, yeah, I'll give him this much. But this I'll keep for myself. This I'll keep for my friends. This I'll keep for my pursuits. No, to give yourself holy spirit, soul, and body, completely given over to the Lord to say, Lord God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. So that means that giving ourselves fully to the work of the Lord means that we have to, we must go through or receive some things from the Lord. And here, I want to go through this list fairly quickly, but trust that you will hear it and say, this is what I need to pray for in order to give myself fully to the Lord. First, we have to receive wisdom and revelation from God to know what the work of the Lord is. What is the work that he wants me to give myself fully to? Because the work that he calls my brother to is not the work that he calls me to. The work that he calls my sister to is not the work that he calls me to. I have to know, what is it, Lord, that you want me to do? And in each season of life, it'll be different. When you're a young parent, the work that he may be calling to you, calling you to is to just change diapers and take care of the kids and you know, wipe noses and do all that. And as they go through that next stage, you're rearing them up and you're helping them, you're training them up in the Lord and you're investing into them and you're doing those things that are necessary for that season. And then the next season, there may be a time when you need to pour out and do something else. And then as grandchildren come along, another season, you're helping in different ways. There is something that is going to be the work that the Lord has called you to at that point in time. You have to receive wisdom and revelation from God. You can't make an assumption. You can't read a book and say, oh, you know, I'm at this age and I have this much income and these are the circumstances of my life. Must be I must do this. Right? No, you have to say, Lord God, what is it that you want me to do? No matter what is in my hand, no matter what my context is, no matter what people are saying around me, what is it that you want me to do? What is it that you want me to give myself to fully? And by the way, there may be something that the Lord is calling you to do here. It may be five years from now. It may be 10 years from now. It may be five months from now. But until then, give yourself fully to what he has already told you to do. If he's already told you to be faithful in the church, be faithful in the church. If he's already told you to train up your children, train up your children. If he's already told you to be excellent at what is good, be excellent at what is good. If he's already told you to be innocent of evil, be innocent of evil. If he's already told you to give thanks without ceasing, give thanks without ceasing. If he's already told you to pray and to intercede and to be fervent and effective, do that. Continue to do what he's already told you to do. The work that he's already said, this is what I'm calling you to. This is what I'm telling you to do. Do it until and, 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 and as he shows you what else you have to do. So we don't run ahead. We don't say, oh, the Lord wants me to do this. I'm over there. I've seen many, many people who have really 
short-circuited what the Lord intended for them because they jumped ahead. They tried to make happen in their strength what the Lord was showing them was about to happen later. And so you have to pay attention to receive the wisdom and revelation from God to know what the work of the Lord is. You have to receive wisdom and revelation from God to know how to get the work done. Because if you say, oh, that's what the Lord wants me to do, I know what to do. I'm a good evangelist. I'm a good this. I'm a, you know, I'm a good singer. I can do that. I can do this. And if you say, I know what needs to be done, you will not listen to the Lord. You will presume. You will just run ahead again. So we have to receive wisdom and revelation from God to know how to get the work done. Next, we have to receive the grace of God to make a wholehearted commitment to work. Giving yourself fully to something is not easy. Giving yourself fully to something and being faithful in it and persevering in it is tough. Right? Every time you have to go and do that workout again, you're like, ah, I don't want to do this. Right? I don't want to discipline myself. I don't want to do this. It's not easy to give yourself to something fully. But you have to have the grace of God for that. And this is not so that we would boast in our efforts and in our labor. It is because we would say, the Lord has given me the strength to do this. It is by his grace, not by my works. Then, next, we have to receive the power of God, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit being born in our lives. The filling of the Spirit is a continuous thing, not just one time, not just in some you know, miraculous way, but always ongoing, the filling of the Spirit. We have to have the gifts of the Spirit. We have to have the manifestation of the Spirit in every way, to get the work done when it needs to be done. Because sometimes you may say, oh, this is what needs to be done, but you have not prepared, you have not waited on the Lord, you have not received his strength, and all of a sudden the time comes for that to be done, and you don't have the means of doing it. So we wait on the Lord, we receive his spirit, we receive his instruction, we receive his power, so that when you say, yep, now I can step into this, I can do this, I can go after this. And then, we want to receive the grace and the presence of the Lord to remain rooted and grounded in Him, to persevere in the work until it is completed. We don't give ourselves fully to something that is temporary. We don't give ourselves fully to something and then say, well, we did about 50%. Right? We, we give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord until it is completed. We keep the faith. We finish the race. And as we fulfill the Lord's plan and purpose for our lives, as we persevere in these ways, as we say, Lord God, because, because the resurrection is guaranteed, because resurrection is guaranteed, I'm going to stand firm and I'm going to give myself wholly to the Lord. The last phrase of the chapter is this. Finally, remember that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There are many, many things that we do in the world today that you say, ah, oh, is there a real benefit to this? Is this really making a difference? Is God pleased with me? I don't know. Nobody else seems to be pleased with me. Right? And you may have all those thoughts about what you're doing. And you say, oh, Lord God, how do I reconcile this? You keep coming back to the scriptures. You keep coming back to his promises. You say, Lord God, I thank you that my labor in the Lord is not in vain.
I thank you that you take note of it. I thank you that you say, well done, good and faithful servant. I thank you that you, Lord, are the rewarder of those that seek you, that obey you, that follow you, that you take care of all of that. Whatever I see, whatever I don't see, whatever I think, whatever I don't think, whatever seems to be the reward or, or lack of thereof, I don't have to worry about any of that. I can be confident that the Lord, that the Lord is going to take care of all of this and my labor is not in vain. This morning I want to encourage you. We've come to this end of this section on resurrection and I trust that it has freshly excited you and freshly inspired you to say, oh God, I want to be resurrected in you. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, come. And when you wait for that, oh, don't wait passively. Wait with all that is in you given to the Lord. Wait so that you say, oh God, I am faithful to do what you have called me to. Oh God, I stand firm and see the work that the Lord will do. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your goodness, your grace, and your mercy in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that as we give ourselves in this way, fully to the work of the Lord, Lord God, when we know that we need to stand firm because the devil will come to kill, to steal, to destroy, there will be something that comes to try to move us but we pray, Father, that we would stand firm, hold firmly to the gospel message, to the gospel truth, to your, Lord, care for us, that we would, Lord, regularly, daily, put on the armor of God and take a stand against the devil's schemes. Lord, we entrust everything to you. We praise you. We worship you. We glorify you. Send us out from here, Lord excited, freshly, Lord, enthusiastic for the resurrection of the Lord. My Lord, until you come, whether we're joined to you because we died or whether we're joined to you in an instant when you appear, let us, Lord, be faithful. Thank you, Jesus. We worship you. We glorify you. We praise your holy name. In Jesus' name I pray.